My name is John Sylvester. I'm a reporter with The Age newspaper. Some people call me Sly of the Underworld. There are eight million crime stories in the naked city. And this is one of them. Mickey's Disco was a seedy joint, the sort of nightclub where you could get anything for a price. Not that the price affected the off-duty police who drank there besides hookers and gangsters, and even worse, reporters. Mickey's was the black heart of Melbourne's underworld. Crimes were planned, spleens vented, teeth rearranged, and vendetta started on the nightclub's sticky carpet. Off-duty detectives and on-duty gangsters worked side-by-side as heavy-duty bouncers. One of the most unpredictable doormen of the whole crew was the well-dressed and slightly unhinged Christopher Dale Flannery, who would later be known as Rent-A-Kill. He was known as Mr Rent-A-Kill, a hitman who's said to have murdered at least a dozen rivals during the gang wars of the 80s. Where are you from? Melbourne. What's your background? I knock people for a quid. You got a problem with someone, I fix it permanent. Flannery worked under the tutelage of one of the part owners of Mickey's, Ron Feeney, a well-known figure in the underworld who was no stranger to violence. Flannery was ambitious and keen to make a mark. He didn't want to control the door, he wanted to own it. When one of the smaller owners wanted out, Flannery jumped at the chance and bought a 10% share. Feeney still owned 41%, but maths was never Flannery's strong suit he started to behave as if he was the boss. His wife, Kathy came to work there and the taking started to drop. He did what many thought was impossible. He actually took Mickey's down market. Flannery was starting to branch out and had aspirations to be a hitman, studying books on pathology to learn his trade. Feeney later claimed Flannery wanted some free advice on Matter's murder. He recalled the conversation. Flannery, if you had to get rid of a body, what would be the best way? Feeney, take it 10 miles out into the bay and dump it. Flannery, no, I reckon dig a big hole up in the bush. Feeney, why? Flannery, I'm going to tell you something. It was just put to me to get rid of a body. I was told to give a price. Feeney, did you give a price? Flannery, yeah. I offered it for 15. Feeney, shit, you'd want more than that to do that. Why, who is he? Flannery, ah, some barrister they want knocked off. That barrister was Roger Anthony Wilson, an ambitious, smart and hard-working businessman. After studying law at RMIT, he began practising as a barrister, but he soon found his real talent lay in the world of commerce. By the time he was 31, Wilson was beginning to be a player in the business world. Roger Wilson disappeared between driving from his factory in Footscray to his home on a dairy stud farm in Nanargoon, east of Melbourne. The date was February 1, 1980. His white Porsche was later found in the long-term car park at Melbourne Airport. The investigation would expose links between business and the underworld and resulted in a young witness joining Wilson on the missing list, never to be found. Early this year, when Roger Wilson disappeared and his damaged Porsche car was found at Tullamarine Airport, it was widely believed that he too had staged his own disappearance. 
There were rumours of problems in his business, but police believe now that he has been murdered. The first day of February 1980 had been a long one for Roger Wilson, even by his standards. Around 9.30pm, having left work, he stopped at a milk bar at Pakenham around 9.30pm to buy a can of soft drink. About 20 minutes later, a man saw a white Porsche pulled over on the side of the road next to a bright yellow car. He was never seen again. The hit team had rented a canary yellow Ford Falcon. There was a reason for this, because it matched the type of car used by traffic police at the time. Homicide detectives would later say Kevin John Weary Williams, one of the hit team, hired the car from Avis using the false name of Marshman the day before the killing and returned it the day after having travelled 966 kilometres. When Williams was arrested months later, he still had a licence under the name Marshman. Williams had a young girlfriend, Debbie Boundy, just 19, who would tell police that on Friday, February 1, she watched Flannery sit at the dining room table and make a fake police sign with white letters on a blue background. The team, so the police would later claim, had already dug the bush grave where they were to bury their victim with nearly 50 kilos of lime. They'd taken the contract on the basis the body would never be found, so a shoot and run scheme wouldn't work. An ambush would be the best plan. But how? On the night of the hit, the two dressed like detectives. Flannery was always a snappy dresser, so it wasn't unusual to see him wearing a plain suit and a nondescript tie. Williams also had a suit, but his was for his many court appearances. Later, when Williams, Flannery and another man stood trial for the murder of Wilson, police produced a replica sign they alleged was like the one used by the hit team. When Williams saw it, he said to Flannery, shit, they've got the sign. That's how close it was. A witness would later tell police that Williams told him that Wilson had tried to run away, that Flannery had chased him and caught him, that Wilson had run into a fence and that brought him back and shot him at least six times. Then they buried him in the hole. Quote, Kevin said it was quite funny how it happened. Everything had gone wrong. He said we took him up to where the hole was and Flannery shot Wilson in the head and Wilson said, what's going on? And started to run. He said Wilson had his hands handcuffed behind his back and ran through the paddock with Kevin and Flannery chasing him. Kevin said that he twisted his leg and his cartridge slipped out. He said that Wilson ran into the fence and bounced back and fell down and they jumped on him and grappled with him. He said Flannery went mad and emptied his gun into him. The witness said Kevin thought that was quite funny. Gangster humour, eh? A police surgeon later examined Williams and found he indeed had cartilage damage to his left knee. Evidence, but not great evidence. But the star witness was Deborah Boundy. She made a statement that she was present during the planning and she was told by Flannery they were going to kill a man. She saw them leave and return. While other witnesses could recall damaging details, Boundy was the one who had the inside track on what the killers were doing. If she stood up in court, the police thought they were home, even though they didn't have a body. But when Bounty walked into the coroner's court and winked and curtsied to Williams, detectives knew they were in trouble. Still in court, she said to Williams, hello, sweetie, and then passionately kissed him. Hardly a good start for a prosecution witness. 
At the inquest, she retracted what she'd previously said, said she had no knowledge on anything and couldn't help. She was charged, but was given bail. But the accused feared that if Boundy had rolled once, she could roll again. What if she recanted again and was prepared to make a statement? On Christmas Day, she had lunch with her parents, reported for bail at the Collingwood Police Station and then slipped over to a Richmond pub for drinks. She didn't expect to stay long because she only had $13 with her and was expected home for dinner with her sister about 6.30pm. She was never seen again, as was the case of Flannery. So what happened? It's believed she was lured from the pub by a female close to Flannery and was finally killed by gangster Alphonse John Gangatana, who later was murdered during the Underworld War. Flannery and the other two accused were acquitted. There were hugs and tears, but Flannery's joy was short-lived. He was immediately re-arrested for the murder of massage parlour boss Raymond Lizard Loxley. The trial would take him back to New South Wales to play out the final scene in the short and extremely bloody life of Christopher Dale Flannery. Former Victorian detective Brian Murphy was a key witness in the Loxley matter. He remembers the Flannery he knew. You knew, well, let's start with Flannery. You knew him from, um, what, from Mickey's Disco? Mickey's Disco. That's the yeah. first time I ever met him. What sort of guy was he? Not a bad, f- he was not a bad bloke, really. For a bloke who killed about six people. Yeah, but it's like Billy Longley, he wasn't a bad bloke either. Yeah. They only killed their own kind. And not that I could agree with that. Looking at it, at least the general public were safe. Uh, Christopher Dale had done some armed robberies in his past, but at this particular point in time, he was only uh, knocking bloke like the lizard. Lizard Loxley. Loxley, yeah, yeah. Gary Loxley. Why yeah. did he knock him? I think he thought he was getting too close to Feeney. Well, Feeney who owned the um, Mickey's. So you had to give evidence um, in Flannery's trial up in Sydney. That was over... Loxley. Loxley, yes. So how did that go? Uh, went pear-shaped. Um, I had permission to take a pistol to court or revolver and um, Kath Flannery saw me wearing a gun. I got a bit of a hiding over that. I got a bit of a hiding over Mickey's disco, but uh, I was sold out by the police in New South Wales and they got 50 grand each to go against my evidence. By early 1985, Flannery was running out of friends. This was hardly surprising as he'd actually killed most of them. He'd built a fearsome reputation for killing on command, but when an attack dog begins to snarl at its masters, it's time for the big sleep. Flannery had made many enemies in the underworld. In Sydney, back then you could survive that if you had powerful friends. But Flannery had managed to piss off his main backers And from that moment on, he was a dead man walking. The life and death of Christopher Rentekill Flannery is a lesson in how Sydney was run and how the New South Wales police at the time franchised crime. Flannery's boss was George Freeman, a crook who made a career out of bribing police. Freeman had lost patience with Chris and was a little frightened of the unpredictable gunman. Flannery had refused Freeman's contract to kill Mick Sayers, so he was no longer obedient. He'd also killed his good friend, Tony Spaghetti Eustace, proof that he was no longer loyal. He'd shown that he would kill anyone 
for anybody if the price was right, or even if he just felt like it. He was on everyone's team and therefore he was on no one's. It was a dangerous place to be. More importantly, perhaps fatally, Flannery had lost his pull with corrupt detectives who remained the main stabilising element in the Sydney underworld. Flannery had threatened police and had shot one, undercover Detective Mick Drury. Even when the notorious Nettie Smith was given the green light to pull virtually any crime he wanted, he was warned he would be protected only if he didn't harm police. Melbourne crook Alan Williams had hired Flannery to kill Drury because Drury was a key witness against Williams. Williams recalls exactly what happened. Well, I knew Chris in Sydney and I knew he had Jackson side because he told me previous. And any time I needed any help from him, just get in touch with him. He knew Flannery had big connections with bent cops in Sydney. He said he had a couple of Jackson Sydney suite and uh, they were trustworthy and had known him for a long time. Haven't mentioned to him that I was pinched by an undercover couple from Sydney. And could anything be done regarding uh, getting him to change his evidence or slow it down? When he started as a hitman, Chris Flannery charged $10,000 for a bashing and $50,000 for a murder. But as his reputation grew, so did his fees, eventually charging 100000 And he didn't care who he killed as long as he was paid for it. In the end, Flannery had managed to alienate all the players that influenced Sydney's underworld. It was not a recipe for longevity. Flannery might have been half crazy, but he was no fool. There'd already been one attempt on his life and he knew it wouldn't be the last. His sister-in-law described him as being jumpy like a caged animal that couldn't relax. In the end, his cat-like reflexes wouldn't be enough. He was about to run out of his nine lives. He abandoned his family home and kept moving between hostels, hotels and private homes. He would wear disguises and change cars every few days and always carried a loaded gun. As the pressure grew, he took to leaving the safety catch off and the gun cocked. It was risky, but better than giving an enemy any advantage in a shootout he thought would soon come. Eventually, he became sick of packing his bags and in April 1985 rented an apartment under an assumed name in the building across the road from the criminal investigation branch in Sydney. Perhaps he thought being right in the shadow of the cops would give him extra protection. It didn't. Meanwhile, key members of the underworld and corrupt police had a council of war and decided that Flannery had run out of time. As usual in the underworld, it would be left to a mate to set up the target and this time the friend was Freeman himself. Flannery knew he was a marked man after surviving several attempts on his life. He was armed, in hiding and on the run. The coroner said the only way he would have been taken was by people he trusted. On May 8, Flannery agreed to meet members of a murder task force informally to talk about the Eustace murder. He denied any knowledge of the case and said he was to meet Eustace, but he hadn't turned up. But what if Flannery had been seen meeting the detectives? Flannery was frightened, so perhaps they were concerned he was going to try and broker a deal with the police that would have involved implicating Freeman. On the very same day he met the murder task force, his pager went off with a message, Ring Mercedes, which was Freeman's codename. Flannery did what he was told and Freeman organised a meeting for the next morning. As bait, 
Freeman told him he wanted him to come around to inspect a modified submachine gun fitted with a silencer. Flannery, a gun nut, couldn't resist. The trap was set. According to Chris's wife, Kath, Flannery was nervous. Quote, Poor Chris was a wreck. That night he began to worry if he'd been set up. He speculated to Kath that if Freeman wanted to kill him, he would lure him into the house and then use the gun with a silencer to finish the job. On the morning of May 9, Flannery dressed for his meeting with Freeman. He was wearing the uniform of the day, pants, a tracksuit top and mandatory gangster jewellery. He had with him a passport in the name of Christopher James, a light brown wig and a loaded 38 handgun, cocked with the safety off. When asked by the National Crime Authority if her husband was armed that day, Kath responded as though it was a stupid question. Oh, he had a gun and it was loaded and ready to go. Yes, it was a little silver 38. Flannery took the lift down to the underground car park and walked over to the Valiant he'd bought a few days earlier. But the engine on his old Valiant wouldn't turn over. So he returned to the apartment, telling Kath he would take a taxi and will be back in a couple of hours. She would later recall that he said to her, ring Marshall batteries and get a new one. I'll be back around 11.30 and we'll go to the movies. He was seen leaving by the building security officer at 8.15. He was never seen again. Kath did as she was told and rang the battery supplier, but when the serviceman arrived and turned the key, the motor jumped into life. What is certain is one of the hit team disconnected the battery to force Flannery out of the front door of the building so that he could be picked up. Then they reconnected the battery to cover the trail. The irony is obvious. The man who made so many disappear suffered the same fate. In other words, the karma bus flattened him. But who was driving? I was crossing the road the other day and a bloke on a bike went past and yelled out, What are you looking at, you bald, ugly chap? I think it was a rhetorical question. Compare and contrast that with more than 2,000 people who've left lovely reviews about the Naked City podcast. Do yourself a favour. Be nice. Send a review. And don't yell at pedestrians. It's still not clear how or where Flannery died. Others, like Nettie Smith, claimed a group of police did it. Mr Glass said police involvement cannot be ruled out. In his autobiography, Nettie, Smith claims, rumour has it that Chris was picked up by a policeman he knew well and trusted who offered him a lift. The car went only a short way before it stopped at a set of traffic lights where two ex-police climbed in. The car took off and Chris was then shot several times in the head and chest as the car drove along. But after taking evidence from 132 witnesses, Coroner Greg Glass has found that Chris Flannery himself was killed, probably on the day he vanished 12 years ago. New South Wales Coroner Greg Glass heard from 132 witnesses during his three-year investigation into the death and was able to debunk several of the more colourful theories, such as the one that Flannery was garroted in a boat shed and dumped in the harbour shot by police while driving on the Newcastle Highway, 
murdered and buried in a Sydney building site, and hit from behind with a meat cleaver and fed into a tree shredder. But he did confirm underworld folklore that it was friends and not known enemies that had done the job. Quote, I'm therefore comfortably satisfied that Flannery was betrayed, deceived, possibly lured into a motor vehicle by someone or by some persons whom he trusted. He was then killed with the remains being disposed of in a manner unknown, unquote. He said the evidence raised a, quote, strong suspicion that Roger Rogerson was involved in Flannery's disappearance and his death, or at least knew what happened to him. Rogerson had the motive and the opportunity to cause harm to Flannery, unquote. He found that Flannery's associates, former detective Roger Rogerson and the late George Freeman were either involved or knew about his disappearance. He also found that Freeman may have been connected with Flannery's fate. Rogerson has always maintained he was not involved, but he would, wouldn't he? Much later, the Dodger told Channel 9's Sunday program, quote, Flannery was a complete pest. The guys up here in Sydney tried to settle him down. They tried to look after him as best they could, but he was, I believe, out of control. Maybe it was the Melbourne instinct coming out in him. He didn't want to do as he was told. He was out of control, and having overstepped the line, well, I suppose they said he had to go, but I can assure you, I had nothing to do with it. Beating him if he was Pinocchio, how big would his nose be? Kath Flannery told the NCA that she quite liked the charismatic cop, Quote, I got to know him in 1972 when he was one of those who verbaled Chris and they hated each other. And then I got to know him and I didn't mind the guy. He was always good to me. He's always been good to the children. I don't think for a moment he probably doesn't take a bit here and a bit there, but I don't think he's as bad as some of them going around. But she did claim that about two weeks after her husband disappeared, Rogerson turned up with an offer of $50,000 to shut up. She rejected it. The money, she said, was from Freeman. Quote, I told him to stick it up his jumper. Freeman also maintained he was not involved in his book, and they all seemed to write one. He wrote that when he first heard of the earlier failed attempt to kill Rentacal outside the Flannery home, my first reaction was one of relief. I hoped he'd been killed. No such luck. Kath Flannery has tried every means possible to fit me for her husband's disappearance and alleged murder but I'll stack my credibility against hers any time, said Freeman, a gangster, a liar and a killer. Back in Yowie Bay today, on legal advice, George Freeman was saying very little about his visit from the police. That I've got nothing to hide. I've told him I know nothing about his disappearance. And that's all there is, mate. Kath Flannery may have been many things, but no one could doubt that she was blood loyal to her Chris. Flannery rang Kath three times a day when he was on the road just to tell her that he was still alive and kicking. When he didn't ring from Freeman's house, Kath knew the worst. He was gone. Flannery's family raised the alarm last night when the 36-year-old ex-Melbourne crime figure failed to return from a business appointment. His wife told police that appointment was with racing identity George Freeman. She rang Freeman and immediately suggested not only was her husband dead, but that Freeman had done it. At 3pm, she rang and Freeman responded, why don't you go and see your mate Rogerson or Billy Duff? Billy was another colourful New South Wales detective. He's probably locked up somewhere. What a lot of crap. She rang her solicitor who checked with the police. Flannery was not in custody. 
Cass went directly to the murder task force at the CIA building across the road at 4.30pm to report that her husband had been murdered, but she refused to give detectives her address across the road. There was a good reason for that. In her apartment were Chris's tools of trade, guns and disguises, and she didn't want the police to be able to seize them. If Freeman was behind the death of her husband, she might have had to use some of the equipment at a date to be fixed. Kath again rang Freeman, and this time the conversation was more pointed. I'll see you later. We'll see about you, she said. Freeman responded, good. Do your fucking best, lady. Charming way to speak to a widow. Kath's prompt visit to the task force gave police their first real opportunity. If they could get a break, they'd be able to find the crime scene and perhaps the body. But if they didn't locate the area where Flannery was murdered, they would always be hard-pressed to identify the professional killers. The head of the task force, John Anderson, rang suspended Rogerson and told him Flannery was missing. That was quite reasonable because Rogerson, having a known link to the hitman, might have been able to shed some light on the case. But if Rogerson, in fact, was involved in the murder, he was effectively tipped off. Later, Coroner Glass would say the strong links between Flannery and Rogerson should have been aggressively investigated. He said the connection, strangely, was not the subject of inquiry after May 9. From the outset, Kath made it clear to the police she believed Freeman was involved. So what did they do? You would expect they would have grabbed a warrant and raided the last known location Flannery was supposed to visit, Freeman's house. But they didn't. For some reason, the police called Freeman, first to tell him they wanted to pop over for a chat and a bit of a sticky beak. George said that without a warrant, they weren't welcome. Police made an appointment to see him the next day. If Freeman was involved, it would be lunacy to warn him that a search was going to take place. Or was it? Kath had told them she believed Chris had been shot in the house, hidden in a secret compartment in the billiard room, then transferred in the boot of an old car to a boat and dumped at sea. On May 10, two detectives went to the house. Freeman, through his lawyer, refused to comment but offered them an invitation to search the house. The detectives, without calling for any forensic backup, conducted a search and found nothing. On May 20, 11 days after Flannery was killed, police returned with forensic experts for a thorough search. Too little, too late. This morning, Freeman's fortress-like Yowie Bay mansion was first on the list for detectives from the gang war task force. They searched the grounds and spent an hour talking to Freeman, his family and lawyer. They found the secret compartment that Kath had told them existed in the house. It was in the den and not in the games room. Twisting shelves that swiveled open revealed the compartment hidden between two wall cavities. Something out of a spy novel. As you would expect, it was clean. So what really happened? What we do know is in that late April 1985, there was a secret meeting in Sydney attended by corrupt police and several major crime figures, including Barry McCann, Lenny McPherson and George Freeman. At the meeting, it was agreed that their underworld war had to end as it was bad for business, and the growing media pressure could result in a royal commission. It was unanimously decided that Flannery had to go if the murders were to stop. McCann said he was prepared to pay for the hit, and Freeman agreed to control the planning. As Flannery was still on the move, difficult to find and always armed, a drive-by shooting 
was considered unlikely to succeed. Remember, an earlier attempt like that had failed. Flannery's own Cliff House was strafed with machine gun bullets from a passing car in January as he and his wife pulled into the driveway. The incident was sandwiched between the gangland executions of heroin dealers Daniel Chubb last November and Michael Sayers in February. Freeman decided on the high-risk strategy of killing Flannery in his own home. For Freeman, the advantages outweighed the risk. While there was a risk of leaving some forensic evidence, he knew that if it was done within the walls of his house, there'd be no witnesses and the body would never be found, as it would be disposed of discreetly. In addition, Freeman knew that if he shot him from behind, he could finish the job. It would ensure the hit would not be bungled a second time. The motive not to fail was strong because no one would be safe from Flannery's revenge. There is a theory like many others, but what can be established is that in the days before the murder, Freeman sought advice from the underworld doctor of choice, Nick Paltos, on removing bloodstains after a murder. Just two days before Flannery was killed, Paltos was recorded talking to another crook known as Croc Palmer on federal police phone taps. He said, mate, I need your help. Freeman said to me, I'm going to knock someone off. I want to know about blood. How long blood lasts? He said he was going to do it at his home. Freeman allegedly said, what I think's going to happen, they're going to come to my house. They'll never think I'll do it there. It's so fucking dicey. I'll give you some good fucking advice. You want to be very fucking careful. Anyway, I know what's going on, he said. Everyone's right. He says that's Freeman. Everything's right for five years. There'll be peace for five years after this week. Almost certainly George was talking about Chris Flannery. Flannery knew what was coming. He just wasn't sure when. By May, the pressure was getting to him. He was fidgety and nervous. He told his mother-in-law, the one that gets you will be a friend you think you've got, but you haven't. He told one of his few remaining friends he feared the police would try and kill him to stop the war. He told his sister-in-law, I think I'm going to die. They're going to get me. I just can't keep running like this. But there was one policeman, or at least a suspended one, that he almost trusted. Roger, the Dodger Rogerson. While on the run, he kept in contact with Rogerson, although he was wise enough to never let him know where he was hiding. But then, on May 8, the day before Flannery disappeared, the rogue detective cast a giant shadow over the case. It was Rogerson who contacted the murder task force and said he could organise a meeting with Flannery. The officer in charge, John Anderson, was not ready to put allegations to Flannery but thought a meeting could break the ice. Anderson later told the inquest, I was sort of taken aback a bit, but nevertheless, I took the view that I had nothing to lose by meeting Flannery. So I said, yes, I would speak to him. I wasn't really ready for the meeting, but I thought something positive was going to come out of it. I was hoping Flannery would tell us about the background to the confrontation, but it wasn't to be. I came away a little bit disappointed, actually. As the pair sat and talked at the New South Wales Cricketers Club, Anderson could see Flannery was there under sufferance. I don't think he liked our presence there. I think he was keen to get away from us as soon as possible. He gave the appearance he was anxious to leave. So it would appear that it was Rogerson who pushed for the meeting, not Flannery. Flannery told Anderson he didn't know who had shot at him in January. Anderson said Flannery appeared very nervous and said his feuds in the underworld had gone too far to be resolved. 
clearly there was going to be more bloodshed. So what was the meeting about? Remember, Flannery would not tell Rogerson where he lived. But having got into the club, it's logical that Rogerson, a trained detective, even though he's a bent one, would then follow Flannery home, finding his address. Soon after that, Freeman made the call for the meeting. The battery in the Valiant is disconnected. Flannery has to go outside. Who drives past? Rogerson. He picks him up to take him to Freeman's. All the loose ends are covered. No one is a witness. If Flannery was allowed to drive to Freeman's in his Valiant, they would have had to dispose of the car. By disabling the sedan, it put Flannery on the street outside the building. This part of the theory tallies with Nettie Smith's versions of what happened. In all probability, Flannery thought that being in Rogerson's company would protect him from Freeman. But his prophecy was right. He was set up by someone he thought was a friend. Remember that Flannery was the person who could implicate Rogerson in the attempted murder of Mick Drury. It was in Freeman's interest and it was in Rogerson's interest to get rid of Rentakill. Although on his guard, Flannery was lured into the den where Freeman used the silent submachine gun to kill Flannery. The light calibre of the bullets was such they did not pass through the body. No bullet holes were found in the walls and the body was never recovered. Once Flannery was dead, Freeman thought he would have some time to dispose of the body and clean the house, but Kath was on the phone within hours. If police had gone to the house straight away, perhaps they would have found some evidence to back up the theory. But having unintentionally warned him that he was a suspect with their call on May 9, they did not complete a comprehensive search until May 20. What is believed to have occurred is that there had been a reconciliation between the McCann-Domican underworld faction and the Freeman-McPherson faction, which left Flannery isolated. With his removal, there would be reason to believe that the previous conflict could be laid to rest. In order to achieve this, the scene was set where Flannery was betrayed by alleged friends. Having killed Chris, the gangsters were sending messages to Kath Flannery not to use any Melbourne heavyweights to try and square up. On August 19, Kath called the police after finding a suspicious device under her Ford LTD. It was a bomb, rigged to go and designed to be set off by remote control. The murder task force found that the bomb, quote, had been constructed by a person with expertise in the area of electronics. Soon after, Kath sold her house and moved to the Gold Coast with her children. Chris Flannery's body, like that of Roger Wilson and Debbie Boundy, was never found. No one has ever been charged with the murder of Flannery. But the underworld war did stop. Naked City is brought to you by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Subscriptions power our newsroom. So to support independent journalism, consider subscribing to the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. This episode was produced and edited by Anu the Axe Hasbold. Archives by Nine. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. I'm John Sylvester. Thanks for listening. <laughs>